trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. So happy you could join me today. I am here to engage in wrong think and to chew bubblegum. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Sorry. I wish I could give you the direct quote from uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper from They Live, but close enough. Hey, our show is brought to you by great sponsors by like uh, MonticelloCollege.org and also by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and also by LifesavingFood.com. I know that uh, this is this has been a very interesting time, and people who are preparedness-minded hopefully have been very consistent in uh, staying with their preps and, you know, topping off wherever they need to. We're going to talk in this hour about the, the uh, upcoming hike in prices that you're going to be seeing. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Here's what I want you to remember. It's National Preparedness Month, and in honor of natural, National Preparedness Month, My sponsor, LifesavingFood.com, is offering 20% off to my listeners when they make a purchase. You have to use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout in order to get that 20% discount. And this is only good through September 25th. So you may want to get a jump on this. I mean, if you are looking for a starter food kit like the Prepper Pack, 52 servings of of great-tasting, freeze-dried and dehydrated foods ready in minutes when you just add water and nice stackable buckets with an easy grab-and-go handle. This prepper pack, 52 servings, it's only $99.99. Minus 20% if you use the coupon code HIDE at checkout. I've got links in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I'd be quite honored if you would take a look at it and do business with them. You might even sleep better at night knowing that uh, you've got some extra set aside for that rainy day, which uh, may or may not be right there on the horizon. So to start out today, or to start out this hour, um, as hard as this may be to accept, I think a lot of people are finally coming to the realization that, uh, you know what, the landscape around us has changed. I have struggled with this personally. There is a shift that has taken place in the last year and a half And we all want to believe it was just temporary, right? Oh, you know, it'll get back to normal. We're going to be back to normal one of these days. If everybody just gets the shot, if everybody will just mask up, if we can just stop COVID, it's all going to go back to normal, but it's not. And I'm sorry if if that dashes your hopes. Not trying to make you feel sad or helpless. I'm just telling you the shift has taken place. And what was before was. What comes next, I don't know. It's still in the process of settling out and shaking out. And uh, you and I still have great influence. And so I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say, you know, don't, don't give up and don't, I wouldn't say you should, should just, you know, go with whatever, but understand the shift has taken place. And as hard as it may be to accept, many of the familiar institutions of Western civilization have either been altered at this point or in some cases done away with. Paul Rosenberg who I always find to be a great source of, of rational information, talks about uh, what remains in the public square. In fact, he calls this an outline of post-Western civilization. 
And I think it's worth considering just from the standpoint of you want to get your bearings. You got to be willing to look around and see where you are. And, you know, this is how we stay on course. We have to know where we are first, you know, before we can plot that true course to whatever destination we hope to head to. And Paul Rosenberg says, look, Western civilization is over. It may live on in some of us, but at the public level, it has been replaced. And he says, every major institution seems to have thrown in with the new civilization. So the question facing us then is, what is this, is, is what this new civilization is going to be like? And so with the usual caveats, he says, here are the essential components of the new boss post-Western civilization. He starts with governance. Now, as far as governance, he says democracy may remain as a sort of talisman, but fewer and fewer changes of power will be forthcoming. Already, Europe is controlled by unelected apparatchiks, and the United States is ruled by executive order. Canada has perhaps been worse, and Australia has very definitely been worse. And resistance has been minimal. Public information has been censored. Police forces have been willing to enforce almost anything. Next, we have commerce. Stakeholders, by which he means giant corporations, states, and a few others, have taken control. Small businesses have been destroyed en masse, and the middle class has been hollowed out. Commerce and state are no longer separated. Next, he tackles debt. Now, debt would normally be considered part of commerce, but over the past two decades, it has been universally available, and Westerners have used it to maintain an illusion of prosperity. And this has left them unable to resist a usurping civilization. To put it simply, Westerners have been silenced by a variant of Coach Lombardi's dictum, debt makes cowards of us all. Then he comes to property. Home ownership is now passé. All ownership is passé. The houses of America are being bought up by pension funds, hedge funds, and giant corporations, a.k.a. stakeholders. The burden of property is no longer something for the people to bear. They are expected to rent everything. Which brings us to law. Post-Western civilization features the pre-Christian model of two legal classes. Now bear in mind that the Greek and Roman names for these classes were citizens and slaves, but the new model employs the terms stakeholders and people. But the difference is almost entirely semantic. Once you have two separate legal classes with different obligations and privileges, slavery is more or less a given especially once the concept of profit has been demonized. Now, certainly the word slavery will not be used, but stakeholders will be privileged and people will not. Already the spokesmen for post-Western civilization are saying, you'll own nothing and be happy. In other words, the new boss will be very much like the ancient boss. Which brings us to public rhetoric. Convincing masses of people that your ideas ought to be followed is essential to every civilization. And post-Western civilization has moved to a new model of public rhetoric. Now, as we've seen, that model is outrage. Facebook and Twitter broadcast the call. A thousand surplus intellectuals find clever ways to demonize the designated heretics. And the group coalesces around that which they hate. This is why, among other things, racism is back. But this time in whiteface. And it's driven by outrage, which routes around both tolerance and reason. 
Next, education. Quality in education, he says, is pretty well over. Lockdown schooling is a failure, which is useful if you like unchallenged power. But for the moment, homeschooling and private education remain. But he says eventually the system will turn its attention toward them. And it will maintain a few elite schools for itself. Okay, brace yourself for this next one. Religion. With Christianity ejected from the West, replacement religions have arisen. Greenism, by whatever name, is the dominant new religion, especially in Europe. Socialism remains a popular compliment. Man's soul abhors a vacuum. And there are religions in every way that matters. Or these are religions in every way that matters. They have clear dogmas, heretics, even inquisitors. Church and state have rejoined. Then there's philosophy. Philosophically, post-Western culture is anti-rational. Postmodernism is flatly ridiculous. We'll use arguments to convince students that no argument really means everything, anything, rather. But it is firmly in place. Its cousins, critical theory and deconstruction, have combined with it to produce millions of surplus intellectuals who only know how to tear down <clears throat> and who despise the old ethic of production. Science? Well, science in post-Western civilization has a new epistemology. That is, it no longer believes that truth comes from rigorous testing and verification. Instead, truth comes from institutional consensus. Break with it and you'll lose your job. Knowledge and state have rejoined. As for the press, the purpose of the press in in post-Western civilization is to protect the people from bad information. This was necessitated by social media and it will be tightened over time. Censorship is the new norm, and disgraceful intellectuals are lining up to defend it. Which brings us to money. He says, honest money is over. Money is now created in any amounts by state-aligned networks. Yes, Bitcoin and gold still exist, but they're either demonized or ignored. And as long as compliance continues, a cashless and fully controlled money system will be enforced combined with a social credit score. The Lords of Wall Street will either be eliminated in a night of the long knives or else will be given privileged seats at the table. So there you have it. There's the first outline of the new civilization under which we live. And whether we like it or not, he says, this is what now stands in the public square. Okay, now this doesn't mean that we're helpless, but this just means we've correctly assessed what we are up against. What we do next... Well, that'll be some discussion for the next few segments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I, uh, I, I'm almost a little bit hesitant with what I'm going to share with you in this next segment here, just because this is going to be a cause of anxiety for some folks. And, and I'm going to temper that by saying, if you have felt some anxiety as you have been grocery shopping lately, then you may have already worked your way through this or at least come to terms with it. You've, you've been able to deal with it. But have you noticed prices going up? Have you noticed empty spots on shelves? Have you noticed... The breakdown in the supply chain. I was What was I reading earlier today? Um, U.S. automakers have missed out on $200 billion in sales this year. Do you know why? 
because they can't get computer chips. They can't get to, you know, microchips and processors for the cars that they're supposed to be building. But you need to get ready. Carrie Lutz, who writes for the Financial Survival Network, says get ready for non-transitory inflation. Ten things about to shoot up in price. So, yeah, we've seen the prices go up. I'm starting to see people say, wow, I'm getting sticker shock. You know, I, I love a good ribeye steak. I loved them even when they were 10 bucks a pound, which I thought was outrageous. I used to be able to, you know, pick up, you know, a nice ribeye for, you know, five, six, seven bucks. Try 19 bucks a pound, 20 bucks a pound. I mean, it's great. You know, I love to have a steak as much as the next guy, but man. You know, filling out the loan paperwork is really starting to get me down. I just, I, I don't want to take the time to do it. So, here are 10 things that are about to go up in price. Pay close attention. Plan accordingly. We'll start with electricity. According to Carrie Lutz, in 2020, 38% off all natural gas, 30, 38% of all natural gas used in the U.S. went toward generating electricity. Now, there are 1,793 gas-powered electric plants in the U.S. And while utilities generally buy most of their natural gas through long-term fixed-rate contracts, the low spot price that we experienced since 2015 has led to utilities increasing their gas spot purchases and decreasing their long-term contracts. So with natural gas recently nearing $5.50 per um, mm BTUs, Higher electric costs are baked into the cake. It's going to cost more to generate that electricity. In the past 12 months, natural gas prices rose over 130%. Now, assuming a prolonged period of increased gas prices, you're going to see electricity rates soon start to shoot higher. And here's one that I think we'll be feeling in the months ahead. Heat. It's about to get way more expensive to heat your home. About half the homes in the U.S. use natural gas for space heating and for hot water. Now, this sector alone was responsible for 15% of natural gas consumption in 2020. But for the same reasons listed as why electricity will be costing more, the decline of long-term fixed-price supply contracts, prices on heat will be higher. Here's one that will make everybody smile. Taxes. Unbeknownst to many people, their largest annual expenditure is taxes. It's not just direct taxes like income, state, or real estate, and so forth. It's also the indirect taxes levied by federal, state, and local governments upon a myriad of businesses and services that are hidden from consumer view. A large portion of your utility bill goes to pay state taxes. Your cell phone bill contains a number of federal, state, and local taxes. Tolls and other miscellaneous taxes are also part of the mix. And many of these governmental subdivisions employ expensive union-based labor. As inflation escalates, those employees will get automatic cost-of-living wage increases. This will increase already staggering pension costs. Therefore, governments across the board will be increasing their already high tax burden. And it will result in higher taxes on everything, even if federal income taxes don't go up. So get ready for a major upside surprise. The next thing that you're going to see shoot up in price will be transportation. A large part of our personal budgets are consumed by getting from point A to point B. Now the cost of doing this has risen and will rise even higher. 
With gasoline prices up a whopping 85% in the past 12 months, commuters are already feeling the bite. Politicians often increase gasoline excise taxes when seeking more revenue. Same with liquor excise taxes. And with electric vehicles expected to capture higher market share, these taxes will have to be raised to make up the difference. In addition, tolls will also increase to pay higher operating and labor costs in running and maintaining highways, bridges, and tunnels. Also, you will see the price of appliances going up. As chip shortages continue, raw materials costs rise, and global labor costs take off to compensate for the near-universal loss of purchasing power. So appliance costs are going to go up greatly. Now, the cost of repairing household appliances have already gone up substantially, and that's because replacement parts are becoming scarce due to supply chain issues. In addition, poor economic conditions are reducing the number of outlets where appliances can be purchased. So if you're thinking of buying that new refrigerator, now is a good time. I know a lot of people have been looking for freezers actually for months, and it's pretty tough to find. Supply and demand. The more demand, the higher they're going to cost. Automobiles will also be going up in price. The prices of both new and used vehicles have increased greatly during the past 12 months. I had a friend, uh, Tyler, sent me some uh, screenshots of uh, new, new vehicles on the lot. And they were asking $15,000 above manufacturer-suggested retail price. Do you remember when car lots would get you in there? Hey, we're going to discount this by $5,000 below MSRP. No more. This is gonna this is gonna get expensive. Prices of both new and used vehicles going up. It's gonna continue for a long time to come, and it's because a large portion of the cost of the automobile is labor and legacy costs. Virtually all auto workers are unionized, and they currently are, or will currently be, or will shortly be receiving cost of living adjustments. Many auto retirees receive cost-of-living adjustments as well, and for legacy automakers, their cost structure is a straight line higher. Food is going up in price. I think that's kind of where we started this discussion. Expect food prices, supply chain disruptions, and weather issues to drive food prices much higher in the months and years to come. There's a reason that the government excludes food prices from the consumer price index, and it's not because they're going down. Higher fuel costs will also result in higher food prices as most modern farming techniques are energy intensive. Not to mention that virtually all food produced has to be shipped to market. Fertilizers and pesticides will go up right along with oil and natural gas prices. This brings us to interest rates. For nearly two generations, interest rates have fallen to some of their lowest levels in several millennia. And Kerry Lutz says uh, that's all coming to an end. The explosion of debt at every level, government, corporate, and individual, has been well documented. And he says low rates are always dependent upon Fed policy. However, there is a limit to runaway money printing. And at some point, probably rather than later, the Fed will have to make a decision between economy and currency. They're going to choose the currency. And then they're going to have to raise rates and counter massive debt defaults in a major deflationary cycle that will usher in an era of higher real rates. I'm going to put that in just plain English so that somebody like me can understand it. Credit has been very easy to get. 
And when central bankers expand the issuance of credit, when they make it simple for anybody to borrow money to start a business or buy a home or buy a car or, you know, whatever you want to do, there are a lot of people who will very willingly wander into that trap and say, yes, sir, I will, I will be happy to take some of that easy money. But when the central banks contract the issuance of credit, in other words, when they restrict it and make it much more difficult for people to borrow money. How about the ones who took out loans, say, to start a business? What did they put up for collateral? Their house? Their business? So when they can't pay that debt back, who takes the collateral? Yeah, it's the banks. In other words, who can't lose? That's right. It's the banks. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They are located in St. George at 619 South Bluff Street. You can call 703-4522. That's area code 435-703-4522. Why would you want to get a hold of the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage? Well, let's assume that you are one of the thousands of people making the exodus from wherever you are coming from and you are ending up in the great state of Utah. Hey, if you're lucky enough to land in the Beehive State, you're going to find there is there's a lot going on there. Beautiful scenery, uh, very healthy, and in many cases, uh, one of the more vibrant economies that you're going to find. But you're also going to see you'll also see that real estate is uh, it's pretty crazy. Prices are are going up because demand is so high. Here's the bottom line: when you are looking for a home you're going to have to be able to move quickly. In other words, you have to have your financing in order. This is where the Heather Turner team has decades of experience. They understand what the lenders need. They understand what you as a borrower need. And Heather can make this happen. Her NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. I even have a handy email link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com that can get you in touch with her. So back to this article. This is from uh, Carrie Lutz. Non-transitory inflation is coming. Ten items that are about to shoot up in price. Have you noticed this? Electricity, heat, taxes, transportation, appliances, automobiles, food, interest rates. Next, he warns about precious metals. Now, for thousands of years, gold and silver have been considered real money. It's only since the advent of unlimited fiat currency that they've been forced to take a backseat to paper forms of wealth. Since 1971, when Nixon closed the gold window, that paper wealth orgy has continued on unabated. And Kerry Lutz says now it appears that the can has been kicked down the road as far as possible and the day of reckoning is nearly at hand. And the golden rule will again reign supreme. He who has the gold makes the rules. Now, whether the nominal price of gold increases or not, the real value is due to make a tremendous move forward. So, I don't know, some people may take that as, well, so Brian, you're a precious metals bug, you know, you're a gold bug. I believe that uh, we are approaching a time where if there is, for instance, a currency collapse in the offing, and I think that's, that's reasonably possible, 
a person would be well suited to have some kind of hard commodity that they can actually put their hands on. Because paper money is just paper that we believe is money. Most of the dollars that most people have to their name are nothing more than electrons in a computer somewhere. You can't put your hand on it. This is one of the nice things about gold and silver. I'm not saying they're the be-all, end-all, and that's the only thing you should have. But I would definitely say it would be wise for a person to have some. I think land is going to be another you know great commodity to have. Tools, training, food storage, you know, barterable goods. These are the kind of things that you would definitely want to have on hand. So if you see the prices of, of gold and silver shooting through the roof, just know. Some people saw this coming. Carry lots among them. And finally, guns and ammo. Okay, that's not a surprise to anybody who's even remotely involved in the shooting sports. Since 2008, the demands for guns and ammunition has been nearly insatiable. And as the world's gotten deeper into an endless morass of debt and loss of freedom, U.S. sales of these essential self-defense products have catapulted forward. The new inflationary trend will increasingly weaken the ability of government to protect its citizens. Now, he says, as Americans, we've been lulled into a false sense of security. Well, the government can keep us safe. But moving ahead, that illusion is rapidly fading. Just witness the 2020 widespread urban riots. As more dangerous cities and states become the norm, people will increasingly ignore draconian gun control measures, and they'll take whatever steps are necessary to protect themselves and their families. It's going to be a glorious time to be a gun dealer. It already is. Now, Kerry Lutz says, for the most part, these trends are inexorable. As Nick Santiago is fond of saying, the trend is your friend until the end. Low consumer prices, low taxes, abundant consumer goods, low interest rates, and low energy prices are coming to an end. The only question is what you're going to do to protect yourself. Now, I know people who've been thinking about this and acting on this for quite some time. And I don't think there's a perfect one-size-fits-all approach that, well, if you just do this, you're covered. But, you know, some of the people who have gone to an off-grid situation where they've done solar or uh, geothermal heating and cooling of their homes, probably not a bad idea. I don't know what's going to work best in your situation. I've talked to a lot of people just in the last three or four days who have said, you know, I'm really thinking I'm going to build me a greenhouse. I would say do it. Do it sooner than later. And don't just build the greenhouse, but learn the skills to actually grow food in it. Got a good friend in the Cedar City area who has given great thought and, and study to this. And this guy can grow stuff year-round. And for those who don't know, Cedar City has four actual seasons. They have a legit winter. But I've been to this guy's place, and I've seen... Fresh lettuce growing during the coldest times of the year. It can be done, but it takes knowledge and it takes a willingness to step up and make it happen. All right, I'm going to shift gears now. There's one other thing I wanted to talk about. Actually, two other things I wanted to cover. I don't know if you find yourself feeling like you're at your wit's end. Mentally, the strain that a lot of us are feeling is uh, it's becoming pretty hard to bear. I find myself regularly doing a reality check on myself. Okay, am I am I doing okay? Am I am I still tethered to reality? Am I am I am I struggling to to deal with reality as it comes to me? 
So if I'm doing this, and I'm a pretty optimistic guy for the most part, it's uh, it's a pretty safe bet that the other people are doing it as well. Annie Holmquist for intellectualtakeout.org has a terrific column about finding a way out when you're at your wit's end. She says, in the center of our office fridge hangs a poem called Wit's End Corner by Antoinette Wilson. She says, it was discovered when our office was going through a difficult time, so it hangs on the fridge as a reminder of the storms we've weathered and as an encouragement for the storms we will most certainly face in the future. More than one employee has been caught looking at it while under great pressure or or overwhelmed rather by problems. But she says, unfortunately, problems are not the sole realm of our office. Everyone goes through difficulties, even as recent months show us, months filled with the overwhelming troubles of election uncertainties, disease, vaccine mandates, and the agonizing defeat of our military. So with that in mind, a look at Wits End Corner may be just the thing each one of us needs as we frantically scurry around, wringing our hands and wondering what to do. Here's what the poem says. Are you standing at Wits End Corner, Christian with troubled brow? Are you thinking of what is before you? and all you are bearing now. Does all the world seem against you, and you in the battle alone? Remember at wit's end corner is just where God's power is shown. Are you standing at wit's end corner, blinded with wearying pain, feeling you cannot endure it, you cannot bear the strain? Bruised through the constant suffering, dizzy and dazed and dumb? Remember at wit's end corner is where Jesus loves to come. Are you standing at wit's end corner, your work before you spread? All lying begun, unfinished, and pressing on heart and head? Longing for strength to do it, stretching out trembling hands? Remember, at wit's end corner, the burden bearer stands. Are you standing at wit's end corner? Then you're just in the very spot to learn of the wondrous resources of him who faileth not. No doubt to a brighter pathway your footsteps will soon be moved. But only at wit's end corner is the God who is able proved. That's a pretty cool poem. I've never seen it before today, but I love it. So Annie Holmquist says, look, are you walking around with a troubled brow carrying a load of cares? Then the suggestion, she says, here's pray. Does it seem like everyone is against you and you're the only one fighting for truth? Tell God about it. Are you pained either physically by sickness or emotionally through the loss of a job or a friend or perhaps because of your principles? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Now she says, of course, a person's heart needs to be right with the Lord before such a recourse can be taken advantage of. An an individual needs to know how to pray. But fortunately, Scripture provides the map to get over both of those hurdles. Try starting in the Psalms. There really is nothing new under the sun. For those who have penned the psalm seem to have known firsthand what it's like to deal with evildoers and in painful situations. Annie Holmquist says, We're not the first ones who've forgotten to use this powerful tool. In fact, she reminds us the American founders used prayer in the early days of their fight for independence. But the more distant that struggle became, the more they forgot prayer. We'll come back to her commentary just to the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I've been sharing this article from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. Finding a way out when at your wit's end. And there's a marvelous poem in there at Wit's End Corner. And it's, you know, some people may scoff at it, but I think there's a lot of wisdom when you are really feeling like, look, I've gone as far as I can go under my own strength. The answer, Annie Holmquist says, is to pray. And she points out we're not the first people to forget that this is a very powerful tool. I like that she references the American founders early in the days of their fight for independence. And and after even they secured that independence, they had to learn how to use prayer. And she uses the example of Benjamin Franklin reminding the Constitutional Convention delegates of this fact back in the summer of 1787, suggesting they return to that strategic plan. Listen to the wisdom in Ben Franklin's words. Quote, In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understandings? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were insensible, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? End quote. I I just... I love Ben Franklin's wisdom. I know the guy was imperfect, but I think the man was was truly striving. I think he was actually somebody who, whatever imperfections he had, he was moving in the right direction. Annie Holmquist says, judging from the document which eventually came out of that convention in 1787, it seems that the founders' shift to prayer must have worked. So she asks, are you at your wit's end corner in this present world? then it's time to try prayer. It's the easiest and most effective thing we can do to find relief for our burdens. I know that uh, this may seem like a really odd topic to be bringing up on a show like this, but I believe that uh, there is great legitimacy in the idea of, of taking these things to God and seeking help whether it's on an individual basis. And I look, I think it's absolutely fine for people to pray, you know, for, for the nation, to pray for their community, to pray for elected leaders. That's not the same thing as endorsing everything they've done. It's not a big rubber stamp. Yep, it's okay with me. I do know this. God is not indifferent to what is happening in our lives. And in fact, when things are going well, that's usually, isn't that when we start to, to get the impression that, well, you know, I got this. I don't need your help. Thanks, but no, I got it. It's only when we're really in trouble, you know, that, that we really, oh man, you know, I think I probably better offer a very sincere prayer. So I think you might want to consider taking Annie Holmquist's advice here. If you find yourself at wit's end. And by the way, it, it helps even if, if you are... 
if you aren't the one who's struggling, for instance, uh, you know, do you, do you have friends? Do you have family? Do you know someone else who's struggling with illness, struggling with financial hardship, struggling with marriage difficulties, addictions, and so forth? I think there's something that's, that's very powerful that happens when you pray for other people. I think back a few years ago, had some friends in, in our, our neighborhood who had a beautiful little brand new baby girl, six months old, and uh, she was sick. They couldn't figure out what it was. She just, she was inconsolable. She was, was clearly in pain. She could hardly stand to be touched and they could not figure out what it was. And they ended up uh, having to, to take her into the hospital. Mom was a nurse. So, I mean, she, she had good care right there at home, but they could not figure out what it was. And they took her into the hospital and uh, the, the doctors were like, well, we think maybe that there's a cyst or something, a problem with her umbilical area, you know, that she seems to be very tender around her, you know, umbilical, um, where, where her belly button would be. It, it was getting very, very dire. This child was getting sicker and sicker. And finally, the doctors decided, you know what, we're going to have to go in and, and do some, um, some surgery on her. Now, keep in mind, that's a six-month-old. The stakes seem pretty high, especially when you're dealing with a little tiny like that. And I remember this friend reaching out and, and just saying, hey, um, just just wanted you to know uh, our, our little girl is really sick. You know, she's headed into the hospital and, you know, could could you please keep us in your prayers? And against my better judgment... Normally, if I'd have sat and thought about this, I'd have thought, okay, this is not the kind of thing that's appropriate for social media. But uh, on a whim, I just made a quick post on Facebook and said, look, um, I realize not everybody believes. I realize not everybody is going to resonate with this. But for those of you who are believers in the power of prayer, would you please exert your faith on behalf of my friend's little girl? And I heard back from my friends later that day as uh, they, they said, you know what, the doctors got in there and started doing this exploratory surgery. And what they found out, this six-month-old had a ruptured appendix. That's almost unheard of in children that young. I mean, look, you know, appendix is getting uh, infected and, and rupturing. That happens. There was a time where that was, you know, that's a, that's a very deadly, you know, consequence we take it for granted. It's pretty easy. What? Your appendix is hot? Uh, yeah, we'll take it out. You'll walk yourself to the car, you know, three hours later. It's, it's, we don't treat it like that big of a deal, but it's still, you know, it's a very life-threatening situation. But what was interesting to me was this, this friend and his wife talked about how, as, you know, I mean, try to put yourself in their situation. The, the, the desperation you must feel as a parent watching your child get sicker and sicker in terrible pain and you can't tell what it is. They ran every test they could think of. Nobody was thinking that it could be appendicitis, much less a ruptured appendix. But they said they felt the prayers of other people being offered on their behalf. Now, I don't know how you explain that. Scientifically, are you going to be able to prove it? I mean, I know the doubters will say, well, if I can't see it or taste it or touch it, smell it, hear it, you know, I... Don't believe it. But these parents told, told me later that they could feel the prayers of people. And we're talking complete strangers being exerted on their behalf. 
I'm not sure exactly how that works too. But I believe them when they say it. And I guess the reason I'm sharing this with you is don't underestimate or minimize the power of seeking help from God. We've got a pretty desperate situation ahead of us in in many ways in the sense that there are multiple crises that are all kind of converging and coming together and overlapping. And as difficult as some of the changes have been in the last year and a half, I think we have even heavier burdens that will be coming in the days ahead. And I don't say that because, oh, all is lost and our lives suck and nothing's going to be great. These are consequences that come from decisions that have been made over decades and have been carried out for a long time, and they're just, they're not avoidable. We may not have made a lot of these decisions, but uh, we're going to see the consequences that come. I'm not inclined to sit there and ask God, please take away these consequences and make our lives as simple and perfect and, you know, easy and comfortable as possible. Instead, I'm inclined to ask God, make me strong enough, courageous enough, and steady enough to weather the storms, whatever they may be, and to to be a source of strength or a source of reassurance to the people around me. Now, just know, there are people that I look to for a source of steadiness and, you know, and courage as, as the wind picks up in velocity and as the skies get darker and the temperature is dropping fast. There's no shame in admitting it's, it's, it's spooky what we see happening around us. And there seems to be a very real conflict brewing up right in front of us. And I don't think any of us are going to be able to sit this one out. There is no safe place to hide, but there is shelter if you're willing to reach out and seek some help from above. It's not going to keep you uh, completely from experiencing the storm, but it should be enough to get you through it and actually be a better person in the process. How could that be a bad thing, right? All right. Have a wonderful time sorting through my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. There's lots of great reading. You can spend hours digging deeper. This is The Brian Hyde Show.